All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Whiskey Slews podcast. I'm here with Sam and Grant. Today we're going to do a little bit different episode than we normally do. We're going to get into a little bit of some waterfowl boot camp, talk about some tips and tricks that we have, some things that have worked for us, some methods, some stuff like that that's helped us uh, kill some more ducks. But beforehand, I think we're going to go ahead and start off with uh, talking about what we've been up to over the last couple of weeks since we did a last sit-down podcast with just the just a few of us without a guest. Um, big things have been happening recently. We uh, we did a lot of work on our garage. Um, starting off, we actually ended up painting the whole thing. That was that was an adventure. That in was itself. a lot of fun. Hell yeah, especially when you're sick. Yeah, yes, we were all about battling sickness. I actually we went to the Dallas show. Uh, we didn't really. I don't know. We touched about touched we on touched that on, on the, the Dallas show on the other uh, episode a few weeks back, but we really we didn't touch about after we left though. No, no. Yeah. Basically, that whole thing turned into a shit show for everybody where <laughs> everybody was basically sick i was basically sick beforehand i got sick like, rko'd during hand. day two yeah i ended up actually flying back to carney uh on the second day of the show after being there for four days because uh the sickness just i mean i i was terrible and then that day i left sam started getting getting t- tingy and uh John Cena snuck up behind and took him down about the next morning. Oh, yeah. And um, finished out the show. You guys, would you have a, a 1 a.m. arrival time back home, leaving Dallas yeah, we, at like 5 p.m.? We were nope. at the point of just, let's get the hell out of here. We had the hotel booked. Just- Dude, it was, it was the last day of the show. I went to the show. I got there, and I'm like, nope. I'm going back to the hotel lobby room. Got me some Popeye's chicken. <laughs> And I watched some Marvel movies in the hotel room and, you know, was just slowly sitting there dying. Saying kumbaya to himself. That's right. Left but it left it to Bob and I to handle things. On the, you know. on the positive side, the Dallas show was great. We met a lot of great people. I met great people the couple of days I was there, but the entire trip they met some great people too. A lot of good clients. We talked to some great people, some great businesses, learned a lot. It was a really good show. We had a great time. It was a the, lot better show than the first year we yes. went. The we had a great time compared just, to yeah. the cogni- cognizance that we failed to have due to sickness. But it was good. It was yeah, good. No, it was it was a lot better this year. It, but it'd be I, interesting to see if they have it there again next year. Well, it's not going to be there. Obviously, they already we already heard that it's not going to be at DFW. Well, they haven't announced it officially. Ducks hasn't, but they're supposedly the contract is up. Supposedly they're going elsewhere, which they should get to a nice convention center like Delta, where you yeah, can get get me out of <coughs> get me out of Texas. It's too yeah. damn hot down there. Tejas, Boosies, though. Have it up north. We were talking to some people at the uh, the Mallard Bay bonfire too. And you weren't there for this, Hunter, because you'd already skipped town. Yep. But um, like they were down. all saying that it was, like, seasonably, like, warmer than normal at that time of the year. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? It's hot as shit. Remember like, the time was, we were down there We were down April, there a month before and in April. And it was 90s And still. it was the same thing, 90s. So I was like, how is this unseasonably warm? Well, what made it even worse weather-wise is that it was supposed to rain, like, every day. So the humidity was just, like, through the roof. And it was 90 some degrees well and then another thing you missed out on hunter was we had Ahmed driving us from uber who did not know what a stop sign was <laughs> oh he, yeah when you ubered to was, that ranch he was flying down this little suburban oh, area and there was a stop sign like every block was his name actually Ahmed? yeah yep it was Ahmed. Ahmed, yeah and uh he like was like just slamming on his brakes at these stop signs oh. and at one point I just looked to him we were all dead silent I said you know the stop signs are not optional they're optional right just keep going because there's well no- you're forgetting a very important part when me and Justin got in the vehicle we noticed on his dash displaying low tire pressure <laughs> I didn't notice that his PSI was like granted it was a car so it's not very much PSI but hey like, they still should be like 30 yeah but it was at like <laughs> I think it was at like 13 PSI. Oh. oh. And I could feel it every time he would brake. You know how you, when you have a flat tire, it's like that, you know? Yeah. Oh, you're like, God. Where you're like roll, rumbling along. To say the least, Uber on the way back from the ranch to the hotel was much better. It wasn't Ahmed? No. It was someone else. It was somebody else. They drove all the way into the ranch to pick us up, too. It was great. It was <laughs> yeah. great. Because it was pouring rain. Yeah. 
Oh, I thought it was going to rain that night. Did it get, do you guys have to quit early because of the rain? We left at what, like nine, 10, something like that. Oh, really? Yeah. I was hacking up my lungs. Oh, I bet you were. Yeah. You were, so you were, John Cena was, you know, you can't see me. Yeah. Like it started sprinkling like nine 30 and it was just like, Oh Lord, time to go. This is like, we got to go. Yep. And they were pretty much done serving barbecue at that point, but it was the best barbecue I've ever had in my entire life. Hands down. Like the, like I'm not a big pork belly person, but the pork belly that they served out first literally melted in your Dude, mouth. Dude, literally every single meat that that guy served, <laughs> you could just gum it. Yeah, like now I'm upset. Now I'm upset because that same night I was eating macaroni from Great Value in my kitchen by myself. That's all right. Uh, I had Popeyes for lunch. That's Man. that's that's still better than the ninety eight cent great value mac and cheese that my sick ass could get up and make that night when I got back to town. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, no. And then Sam just was just put the team on his back and drove us home. Oh, nine yeah. hours. Just was, nine hours. Yeah. I, well. Yeah. He wouldn't let night. anybody else drive. That's what I heard. He said, "I'm not. No one else is driving. It's gonna be me. If yep. I fall asleep and kill everybody. That's all me." Yep. <laughs> it was like a, I'm sick and I want to focus on something about you know maybe not dying. Driving. Did y'all did y'all have an incident with another Hyundai Sonata that almost hell took no, you off man. the road? It was, it was a very simple. On drive. the way down, we, we only had we a, only almost missed one exit. That was yeah. it. Oh yeah, yeah. On the way down, we had a Hyundai come into our lane, and we were doing like 80, 85. I was driving. I'd been. It was right outside of right outside of Dallas, like or right at the Texas border, going down. And I was driving. I'd been driving the whole way, and this Hyundai just started coming over into our lane, and I didn't see it because we're in the truck, and the Hyundai's two feet tall, and just Sam all of a sudden just whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> And we're like, and I looked over and I swerved and I'm off on the shoulder and Sam and Grant are both looking at the guy, giving him the, the what for and not flipping him off, but just kind of putting their arms in the air going, yo, what the hell, man? And his th- car was like less than a foot. No, it was oh, like it inches. Was within inches. I, he, dude, I was sitting in the passenger seat as this guy was merging onto me and I'm like, yep, this is it. This yeah. is it. This and is I, well, this is where it goes down. What I think was the funniest is when we all stared at the dude and we were like, yo, motherfucker, what the hell? And the dude was just, I mean, eyes as wide as you could ever see them. I think the best part about him us. was like on top of him being so terrified, you could see his wife. And oh, just berating like, just him. Absolutely like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> just absolutely screaming at him in yeah. the car. But yeah, no. Speaking of getting off the road, a slight off topic story, but I'm going to tell you guys about it. Yesterday night I was coming home. I was on end, going back towards my house down there by 11th Street, and I was driving. And you know, end. It's not yeah. a busy street. I'm down there. There's one other guy in this other lane, and I'm passing him because he's doing like 30s, an old man, and I'm passing him, minding my own business. And this motherfucker just starts coming over, like right next to me, and he comes all the way over. And I literally, I drove my truck up to where half of my truck was driving in some guy's yard, and half of it was on the road laying on the horn and i got up to the guy and i was i was having a little bit of a bad day yesterday so i rolled my window down i looked at him and he looked at me and he flipped me off that guy flipped me off for me being in his lane apparently so you know what i did i did the right answer i flipped him off back i was like what the fuck are you doing dude and this old man and his wife were just burdening me the whole time for him fucking driving in my lane. It was a whole ass experience. He chased me about all the way back to my house before he finally left and went on his way. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, since we've got back to Texas, though, we've done a lot to the garage at the lodge. Um, we put in, if you have any idea what the lodge looks like, we basically wiped out everything on the walls of the lodge, repainted it, um, took one whole side of the lodge, built lockers for all the clients and ourselves made it to where we can store stuff above higher up above the garage and then redid the bird hitch area we we took necessary precautions i'm a bit messy when it comes to the bird hitch that bird hitch was uh kind of a problem last year we didn't account for as much splatter y'all ever seen a paintball grenade that's what happened that's kind of what it happened i'm the modern day picasso when it comes Mm -hmm. to we should have just cut out that piece of drywall and sold it in New York City for a half a million dollars. No kidding. Yeah. It would have been Contemporary great. paintings. But, nope. but got everything set up for that, and the garage is pretty much all but done at this point. Yeah. We, uh, what else did we do? Well, we laid down that foam flooring, that flooring so you can walk laid to the fridge flooring. and the lockers and all of that. Um, waiter rack. <coughs> yeah, waiter we built rack. a waiter rack. We bought a gun safe. 
Yeah. A lot of gun safes so we can keep all of our careful guns Careful with the place. keys now. Careful, yeah, careful with the keys. Sam broke the keys off the other gun safe <laughs> in the middle of Orschlitz. He's turning the keys to the gun safe. He turns it and tries to unlock it like I did. He turns to unlock it and he just straight snaps the key in half inside of the fucking lock. He just looked at me and I looked at him and we're like, well, I hope they don't give us this one. <laughs> yep. Well, I really, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I, I don't know if we quite need one that bad anymore if we have to try to pull a lock out of one of them. Then, yep. then added added a sink in there too. For yep, haven't quite. That, that's one of our projects. We got to connect it to the water, but the sink will be nice, so we I stop think, bringing bloody shit into the house. I think that's about the one thing we really need to finish up in there at this point, besides just storing stuff away now. Well, we actually. need to unstore. We put all of our shit in totes and put all the totes up above the garage, but now now that we're done, now we, we need, need to, to unpack those them. totes and put the shit that needs to be not on the shelves. I mean, not in the garage. On the totes yep. in the garage on the cubbies. Yep. But. And then, yep. So that's really all that's been going on with the lodge area. And then doing a little bit of property management too. Out yeah. Of the property. Yeah. We uh, look out for a, a future episode when we talk about the entirety of how we develop that property and the things we're going to do for it. That'll be fun. But um, yeah. Kind of jump into the the waterfowl side of things now we uh we do a lot of waterfowl hunting so <laughs> a little bit unfortunately or fortunately we've seen a few things and we know a few things and uh we just want to transfer a few things over to you guys and allow the people who are listening to maybe take something learn something help them kill kill a few more ducks in the year um first place you know i feel like you got to start where you start in the season you start at teal season teal are one of the most predictable yet unpredictable birds. Sporadic. At the same time. You can find a spot with 50 teal, 150 teal on it, go back the next day, and you'll see four. You might kill those four, but you'll see four. Or you'll see 500, you know what I mean? Like We've hunted ponds with 100 teal on it and gone back the next day and seen 500 teal and you know burned them down. And we've hunted ponds that have had 10 teal and gone back and not seen a teal. Not for guiding, of course, but just just hunting but first place to start with teal is the migration what we're looking for in our time of year is uh august late august maybe maybe early september you're waiting for that first day when you get low 50s that first time when the temp hits to about low 50s up in north dakota it might hit high top 40s or 50 exactly and when that first kind of cold push comes in it's kind of when you know the game's starting this last year it just didn't quite didn't come early for us. It actually I what, when do you think it came? I think it was it, some, almost I mean, the second second group we had is when I think it happened. Yeah. It yeah. was late. I don't think we hit peak peak numbers until like damn near pushed until the end of September. As yeah, far as teal, teal. Like we didn't get yeah. peak peak. We were hunting the first the first group we had in, and then the first and then about half of the next group we had in was like all locals. We were hunting. We weren't really hunting a migration. And teal teal are really tricky. So a lot of people do a lot of things when they're trying to kill teal. But one of the things a lot of people do is they're blowing their duck call. You know, blowing your feeder call, your hail call, comeback call, all of that. I would suggest not. <laughs> You stick out a lot more, you know, teal aren't very responsive. The most I've ever seen teal do is teal will listen to a blue wing teal call occasionally, but I've seen some good response to just the peep, a peep from a whistle, like a green wing teal peep. And that's primarily what we do. We stick to using those teal calls and very, very, very seldomly. I mean, with teal, most of the time, they're either coming or they're not. There's really no work in the teal into the decoys. And for us, unlike a lot of the places we're hunting, they're either coming in in the first pass or you're landing half of them in the first pass and the other half in the second pass. But there's really no, you know, it's not like when you're mallard hunting. They don't spin you and work you, and you, you can't necessarily call them down. I mean, you can. That, that is the beauty of teal season is that it's – the freshest of it all it's the beginning of the season the birds haven't been pressured and as far as even just going back to the calls i mean relatively if you're getting if you're trying to get into teal hunting it 
think it could be relatively cheap. You know, buy a teal call of what five bucks. Yeah, they're cheap. Teal people whistles, use, yeah. As far as decoys go, I mean, people use everything. You can decoys. Put out that's the that's the big thing. You don't. It doesn't really matter what decoys you use. You could use mallard decoys. Some people say they use mallard hens. Some people say they use only teal decoys. Some people say they use only hen teal decoys during early season. In our opinions, it really doesn't matter. I haven't seen anything. I like mean, just having spinners. It's yeah. more of just, at that point, it's more of just, if you want the realism, then go for it. You know, if you want it, go yeah. for it. If it makes you feel better at night, If you go got the money it. to spend on teal decoys and all sorts of little stuff, do it. But I've never been stirred, stayed, stirred the wrong direction, steered the wrong direction. Jeez. That was tough. Uh, steered the wrong direction, just running <coughs> mallard decoys or whatever. It does not matter, really. We, we as long as you're in the right spot. And, and on top of that, you don't need very many. The most we, the mo- like we, we own teal decoys. The most we have is four dozen. The amount of times we actually ran all four dozen teal decoys during teal season last year, I bet it was within one or two times. Not only that, but we stick – to strictly green wing teal decoys. Yeah, yeah, we don't have Why don't blue you wing explain teal that for us, Hunter? Why do we stick to green wing? We are in Nebraska. So what happens is, is in the early season, you're going to see all sorts of blue wing teal. They're all plumed. They're they're not all plumed out. They're all brown. But that's just that September. After September, we see green wing teal almost exclusively from mid October on, unless it's a warm year. We don't shoot very many blue-winged teal outside of teal season, and during then, like I said, they're all brown ducks, not like it matters. Mm-hmm. And um, if if you own blue-winged teal decoys in the south, that's a good idea. Yep. Up here, I would really stick to the green wings just because of how little you do see the blue wings. We've shot we shot green wing teal on almost the last on the last day of duck season this we year. We shoot them all the way until the yeah. end. No we shoot them how until the cold end of it season. goes. So we keep the teal decoys in stock like that. On the other end, for for the grip uh, for the blue wing teal, uh, it comes back to the calls and the mallard decoys. Blue wing teal don't decoy to green wing teal any different than green wing teal decoy to blue wing teal or mallards. I mean, they just they just decoy and. I mean, our, our our average teal spread was about 18 teal decoys, two to four spinners, probably. Eh, I think we, and we two have to four. about two to four. I don't think we ever use more than four. And you don't really need water motion. Spinners, you know? yeah. though, that is a topic within its own with teal. Yeah. I see now, it's another controversial one. I use Matt, we use Lucky Duck HDIs and Lucky Duck teal. I was just generally speaking, like teal, in my opinion, from you have to I've have seen, spinners. They love, love, love spinners more than any other duck that I've seen. Just like when it comes to that time and decoying birds, mm-hmm. I mean, <coughs> the motion, the motion of the spinners does more than calling. Like for mallards, most of the time you're talking, yeah. calling, you're working, you work the mallards. You can, you even remotely work the spinners, all of that. Yeah, but teal, you just flick them on and they'll suck right in it's like it's like it's like flies flying into a damn lamp yeah i've actually been on some teal hunts where we've used like 18 spinners and let me tell you there was a teal flying in that marsh (laughs) they were coming right to where those were not ice i'm very serious oh yeah i shit you not we we got our birds that day and uh, it was quick. It was easy. We shot like six, seven limits of them, and um, it was so cut and dry. And guess what? Too, we used like eight teal decoys, like eight actual decoys, and like eighteen spinners. Dude, if I had it my way, and I just had unlimited money, I'd just run all spinners. Twenty-four for teal. teal spinners. Hell yeah! Literally. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, that is. We've even used like we've even used like our. We have a bunch of lucky dove spinners. That we yeah, use, we for use dove spinners. Dove, too. dove hunting. <clears throat> we'll bring dove spinners and teal spinners. We'll use like four, two dove, two teal, and it all works great. We'll use the HDIs. The only time I actually like to use the HDIs over the teal spinners or the dove spinners is when we're working in either a big marsh 
when we're working in a place that's a little more traffic. That way, when you're a little further distance, having that bigger wing and that bigger coverage allows you to get a little more pulling power. A little bit more flash. You in get the a wings. little more flash at a further distance. And that that's the but teal calls. Like, if we're seeing teal at the distance, I'm not using a teal call. Just kind of watching and hoping. You might give them a peep. Work. You might give them one of the me, 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 just like one of them. That's it. Only time I really like to use a teal call is if you if you get them just kind of making spins on you, which does not happen often, hardly at all. But if they're making some spins all around the marsh, maybe then I'll give them a little bit of little little meep or a little peep or something just to try to give them a little bit of enticement. And ninety percent of the time, it doesn't work. Now on the flip side of that, the only time like I personally ever saw like calling at them like really helped was hunting big water, not like marshes like open water like a small lake type of stuff like out in the panhandle of the state where like when i went to college that's what i noticed really worked too like <clears throat> at, when you're on bigger water and they can fly everywhere and anywhere yeah. it's obviously you want to still set where they're wanting to be and wanting to feed at in the shallow parts but like I mean, we see that a lot on just hunting the river our river property i mean if you watch teal on the river they're bouncing from one sandbar, landing, going to the next, going to the next. I mean, they're just so sporadic. And there's so much open space for them that, you know, that is a scenario where calling at them can make a big difference. Yeah. It's just, we usually, it's, it's something where, like, when you get yourself into those scenarios, it's good to have a teal call. I, at no point do I ever think a mallard call, or pintail whistle or any other call that's not like a just a peep or blue wing teal call is basically unnecessary. I think the best way I I personally think the best way to beat beat up on teal is just location. Yep. I think location, location, location. If you're not where they want to be, don't expect them to go there. Marshy areas, man. Mm-hmm. And I also think a lot of our advice, a lot of what we're talking about that works for us is subjective to where we hunt. We hunt in the rainwater basin, the Platte River. We hunt in the marshes. We hunt in all these different areas that don't, they're not open, big open water. They're not the Louisiana marshland. They're not Arkansas. They're not southern Texas with the open fields. They are 60, 70 acre smartweed marshes. You know, they're the Platte River little sloughs along the Platte River, little veg ponds, you know, retention ponds, farm ponds, places where there's not that much area for the birds to work. So for us and our experiences, it's just always been if you're where they want to be, you're already in probably the best standing. Spinners will help, dequiz will help, calls will help on certain times, but location is the most, the most overrated, but or the most underrated. Um, but then, you know, teal season – Teal season's fun, right? It's great, but then you get to October. That is where you find a lot of stuff you knew in teal starts changing. October in Nebraska, and this is also keep in mind, this is for us here in Nebraska. This doesn't apply to North Dakota or other places. It's obviously a different time of year for different areas. But here in Nebraska, once you get to October, First weekend of October usually is when our regular rainwater basin duck season opens. By then, on a good year, you normally will have a slim pickings of migrations. You'll have a few brown ducks have came in, definitely more teal, maybe some wood ducks, maybe maybe a few pintails. Usually pintails are pretty early. By then, a lot of what we talked about with teal season just kind of, it all kind of changes. For starters, it comes back to the decoys. Now, you're not just working teal that are buzzing around and knowing where they want to go. You're going to still see that, but now you need to have pulling power. Now you have ducks that are on public marshes. These public marshes are getting berated. If you're us, we're your guide service. You're hunting on these farm ponds, and you're hunting on these marshes and these properties like some some river property in the early zone or places where you have to run a little bit of traffic on these birds. Not only that, but a good thing too to add is you better be taking hide very serious mm-hmm. now. 
Yeah, we didn't even touch on Hive with Teal. I didn't even <laughs> yep. think about that. Yep. Simple thing with Teal is, is just just sit down. <laughs> That's probably why we didn't touch on it, because just sit down. Yeah. I mean, a good high is always going to be a good thing for Teal, but we the, hiding during Teal season is something that's so it's, – it's almost controversial because it's like some people will just plop a bucket in the middle of the marsh and be like, that's it. Some people will grass A-frames or do layouts. I, my personal opinion is do layouts or A-frames or get into the cattails and get really covered up. But it's like you don't have to brush for teal like you have to brush for ducks. To, to ducks the general hunter, you know, weekend warrior or whatever, like exactly what you're saying, hunter. You know, you don't have to go. You can make it what you want it. For, yeah. us, for us as a guide service, yes, we're going to take it to a T. We don't want hide to be any reason why – a hunt's not going the way it should. So we're going to take it serious. We're going to grass up our A-frames to the bone. Same with layouts, whatever we do. But I know, speaking from a public hunter standpoint, sometimes those options aren't readily available. Sometimes a marsh doesn't have a lot of vegetation. Sometimes you're kind of stuck with what you have. And during teal season, that usually is typically okay. But getting into regular duck season, that's when things change. That's the glory of duck hunting in the usually in the early season is what I'd say. The teal season in the early season is hunters who are not that into hunting, hunters that don't spend that much time in the field, hunters that honestly don't care that much about killing a bunch of ducks. That's your time that early season. Uh, you are able to get away with a lot. You're able to just go out there and enjoy the sunset, and you'll still usually kill a few ducks, mm -hmm. as long as you're as long as long as you're at least trying to hide a little bit. That's that's great for your try-hard hunters out there, the people who really love getting that action, getting them birds working. Hide starts off in October. It's basically like teal season for about the first weekend week. Then after that. The birds do get wary because what happens here is in Nebraska is they get stale. They don't quite – you don't quite see – migration's not on a clock. It's not like every Friday we're going to see new birds. It's, well, we saw birds on Monday. We might not see birds till the next Friday. You know what I mean? We might be hunting those same birds for two weeks, which means as hunters you want to be able to keep your hide relevant to the birds you're hunting. In our opinion, like when we go out, when we're scouting, I'm driving by, I look at a farm pond, I see, I see 100 ducks on it. I'm like, all right, I'm going to hunt here tomorrow. How am I going to hide? First thing I'm looking for is I'm looking, I'm saying, I'm looking at the bank and I'm going, can I get A-frames there? Because as us as a guide service, we have a lot of older clientele. We have a lot of people who do not like layout blinds and people who do not need to be on the ground, on a bucket, in places that you don't, that are not comfortable. So I'm always trying to hide A-frames. And um, if I can't hide A-frames, then usually the next best one is layout blinds. And a layout blind, it's uncomfortable for older people. It's usually not the most ideal situation. But if I absolutely have to, I'm looking if I can do that. There's no way you could put an A-frame or a layout blind down there. You're just you're in a tough spot. We've uh, we very seldomly not found a spot where you couldn't hunt a layout blind or an A-frame. Sometimes the A-frame sticks out a little bit, but having that comfortability and being able to create that that box and kind of de-shadow it, create less of a I'm less of a box and kind of create that just clump or brush pile. It allows us to make A-frames work in places I mean, that... just can't. going off of hide, too, like, <clears throat> as a guide service, there's been times where, you know, you find multiple feeds, and one might be a little bit better than the other numbers-wise, but if it has no hide, if you can't figure out a way to hunt it like you need to, most of the time you're going to go with that second option if it has better hide, as long as the numbers are relevant and you think you can get a good hunt out of it. The hide dictates a lot for our hunts. Yeah. I mean, I, we can't stress that enough. The hide is really how you develop the hunt. I mean, we base our hunt starting with the hide. The very next thought 
after the hide. So it's it's early October, early November. You're out, you're right after the hide. This is early to mid seasons where we're at here. Next thing I'm thinking is decoys. Now, when I'm at that point, when I'm at the point of where I am, there's more ducks here than just teal. There's gadwall, widgeon, pintails, mallards, divers even, teal. Maybe even there's a speck, a couple speckle bellies. You know, we're looking at what's on the pond or what's on the marsh or what's on the river. And you're kind of trying to match the hatch if it's almost all exclusively gadwall. Bring a lot of gadwall, bring a few mallards, bring a few teal. Are they really moving around? Are they creating a lot of water motion? Or are they just sitting stagnant? Are they just relaxing? What time of day were they there? This all dictates what kind of water motion, what kind of land motion, spinners, stuff like that we bring. Are they all up on the bank? Do we bring full bodies? Or are they all sitting on the water? What are they doing? And all that whole ideology of what those birds are doing when we're watching them is how we design our spreads for the next day. When we come up the next morning to show up for a hunt, whether it's on a marsh, farm, pond, whatever, first thing we're doing is we're setting that hide the way we talked about it the night before. The very next thing is we are setting those decoys to, to mimic almost the exact number of birds as long as it's under, it, as long as it's under 100. We're usually trying to mimic, mimic about the exact number of birds. If not, we don't always mimic to that quite of the extent, but if there's... 200 birds out there we're going to put more than two dozen decoys and so we try to mimic the birds we try to place the birds the decoys in the places where the birds were you'd really try to match in the words of it match the hatch set up how they were so it looks like nothing changed clearly the another factor on top of it too that <clears throat> we haven't talked about much in this podcast really at all is the weather mm-hmm. so not only are we matching the hatch but you know, if it's real calm, you know there's not going to be wind. You're on a farm pond. Those decoys aren't going to move unless you force them to move. Put some motion out, man. Yeah. Get things going. Get things moving. Yeah. Make it look realistic. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, the standard presence or the standard ideology for waterfowl hunters is set up with the wind at your back. So great great thing from Sam. It's We always take advice of the wind. Um I didn't really touch on that because it's just kind of like that's just that I feel like that's just kind of the the standard is you always set up with Mm -hmm. the wind at your back. And also, I will say there are a lot of ways that plays into to your hide. Maybe you can't hide very well with a west wind, but maybe the next day there's a north wind and you can hide really well with that. Maybe you save that spot for another day. Side shooting. So we we do a lot of side shooting. Side shoots. It, you know, literally, it's so the wind, the wind and the weather is so subjective to the hide and all of that that every single situation is a different complex situation as to how you need to approach a hunt because of all the all the factors put in play. And um, when you get out there, sometimes the wind will be like, "Hey, fuck you," you know, "I'm going out of the other way," or something like that. And uh, then you got to be mobile. You got to adjust. Then this and this is what happens so much in midseason. Things change. <laughs> birds are changing. You know their behaviors are changing, and so you got to. This is where it starts to be really incremental that you're making adjustments. You're doing things differently than maybe what you normally do. I mean, we've there's been times. And every waterfowl hunter goes through it where no matter what you do, I mean, you're in the right spot, right? There's birds yeah. there's birds all around you. I saw them here yesterday. You think the weather's right? Well, guess what? The birds say, screw you. We're going to do our own thing. They land on the other side of the place that you're at. And so don't be afraid, especially mid, mid to late season, to just try something out of box. Mm-hmm. Do something different. As for... The decoy placement kind of touched a lot on that. Sometimes waterfowl hunters do overlook decoy placement. Like, for example, you got to hunt. It's October. You're on a marsh. The birds just aren't 
quite doing what you want them to do. They're maybe landing a little far out, little left. Most hunters almost immediately look at the decoys and go, decoys need to be moved. We don't. Very first thing we do is we look at ourselves and go, look left, look right, kind of get out, look back at the hide. Are they seeing us? Yep. It's where a lot of hunters that are young, getting into the thing, getting into the sport, doing all that, they make a lot of mistakes as their first thought is, I'm going to move the decoys. Maybe the decoys are fine, but are you fine? Is the hide fine? All of that together, you know, okay, maybe that didn't work. Then the next thing we're looking at is our calling. Calling is a huge part of early and mid-season, huge part. In early season, we don't, we have, we will have our mallard calls now. We'll have our, our normal calls on our lanyards, but we don't, we don't use them hardly, hardly, especially when the birds are in a heavily pressured situation. Obviously, as a guide service, we don't hunt public land much anymore, but we do have some spots that are near public land that we kill birds that come off of the public land when the shooting starts, and then we, we catch them on, on transition or loaf ponds or places like that or marshes or the river. When we're hunting spots that are high pressure, even in the early season in October when we're seeing mallards and pintails, I'm talking to maybe a simple greeting call, maybe a little feeder chuckle later, a little bit of a pintail whistle or a widgeon call if there's that, you know, if that's what you're calling at. But we usually just let the birds work. Early season birds that we have found tend to be mostly, mostly like teal. Most of the time, they either want to be there or they don't. They're either coming or they're not when they see you. Granted, that's not every single time. You're not always going to see that. But normally, in early season only, the birds want to be there or they don't. And um, that dictates the calling. You don't call a lot of the birds because either A, it's not going to do anything, or B, it's just going to pressure me even more. Don't try and dictate what a bird's going to do before it does it. Watch the bird respond to it. Watch the bird respond to it. You got to really watch their behaviors as the season progresses before you just start ripping at them. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes more and more and more and more crucial as the season progresses. And the same thing with geese too. I mean, it's to a T, it just gets more and more difficult. And where we're at, you know, we, we do have a little bit of a luxury where we're not down south, where mm -hmm. these birds have had everything thrown at them. I mean, you hear it all the time from our clients. I mean, most of our clientele comes from the south, but down there, you're really playing a different ball game. Yeah. <clears throat> and another thing is, is, like Sam said, you don't ever want to be afraid to get outside of the box. I've gone on some hunts before by myself where I've taken four or five decoys, not a spinner, not touched a duck call, put the decoys 20, 30 yards away, and just sat back and just watched. Done great. You know, types of things where most duck hunters kind of get on a pattern. You know, a lot of duck hunters do a lot of the same things because that's just, they see someone else doing it. They see them shooting birds doing it. They think that that's, that's the way to do it. And like, you see a lot of people who will come on and they'll use everyone, the standards, like what, two, three dozen decoys? I'd say. Yeah, something around there, maybe five. Two to three, five dozen decoys, <clears throat> two, three spinners, yeah, and a uh, lot of duck calling. Yeah, that's just that's just about how a lot of people roll. Which, a lot of times, that'll work, but there's times that it won't. And the early season, honestly, is it's usually not that one of those times. But as you transition into the mid season in November, that is when your birds start to learn. Your birds start going. All right, we've been getting shot at since Canada. We're here in Nebraska. Things aren't right. 
then you really got to start thinking about it, you know? Then you're calling. We start picking up our calling when it comes to November, late October. Birds start responding to calls really well. But it comes back to having calling clarity, knowing when to use your call, knowing what sounds to make out of your call, and then when you are blowing your call, being able to have precise and clear-cut notes that sound realistic. Sometimes noise and a lot of noise and a lot of notes and all of that at the same time, it might sound good at a duck calling contest, but it would scare the living shit out of a mallard. And not only that, but getting into the setting that you're in Mm -hmm. really starts dictating. When we're on the river, you're running traffic. Yeah. You're barking at them. You're getting their attention, and then you slow down when they get in, you know, versus as opposed where you're, you know, it's November. We could still be hunting some ponds, smaller ponds, yeah. whatever. Well, guess what? They, If you're in where they want to be and they didn't migrate out, they want to be there. You don't need to bark at them. So this is where the setting really comes mm-hmm. in big time. Part of becoming a very successful duck hunter comes off of just being able to know the situation that you're in and adapt to that situation with everything. If you're on a farm pond where the ducks want to be, dozen, two dozen decoys. If you're on the river where you're running traffic, eight, ten dozen decoys. As we call it, throw the whole circus yeah, at them. Yeah, throw, throw the circus at them. <laughs> Legendary quoted from, from clients that have came in the past, throw the whole circus we at We got them. the whole circus out today, boys. But if you're out there on a, on a hunt in November weather's gonna really start changing then now it's getting cold shit's freezing birds are starting to get concentrated you're losing a lot of your gray ducks it's mainly mallards you can also that's about when you start finding them in the cornfields yep cornfields is just a completely different topic because it's different it's dry field ducks here in nebraska it's tough to get them to feed early so it's a Sometimes it's a tense topic between some Nebraska duck hunters because it's like them bastards don't come out till five minutes before shooting light unless it's snowy, cold, or cloudy and windy. And um, on the days that they do, though, field duck spreads, the, flip, the script is almost flipped. As we start getting into November and December, we actually start using spinners less. We start using motion, water motion less because the ducks have seen that. They know that. They're used to that on the water but when you get into the fields you start using the spinners more mm-hmm. you go duck hunting in this in november or december in a field it's like teal season throw the circus of spinners at them mm-hmm. ducks well, love spinners not only that fields. but like specifically when you get into spinners better grab those hd eyes and have a remote on them because usually i mean we're, we'll talk about goose hunting another time but a lot of our dry field hunts, even if we're heavily targeting ducks, we're still throwing geese out with it. I mean, most of our spread are It's basically goose all goose decoys and then, like, spinners, mallard spinners. Yep, and then maybe we'll throw a couple duck silos with it. But it doesn't take a whole lot of draw power for those ducks in a field if you're where they want to be. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a whole different thing. And then, then water, which... Completely. I mean, completely different. It's a lot of, it's a lot more just like, you know where those ducks want to be. You don't have to put yourself in where you're back to where you're in a high pressured scenario. Just trust that you're calling Mm -hmm. and the spinners will do a lot of the work for you in that situation. It's also, it's, uh, when you're in that kind of hunting in that early mid-season, even in the cornfields, there's still so many areas for these birds to go. That's the glory of early season. Is it, Well, the glory or the tragedy of it is there's a, thousands of ponds and sloughs and river and marshes all over the place that birds can live on and roost on and and be on. Sometimes you go to a spot, think they're going to be there, they go somewhere else, and it's just like, it can really get down on duck hunters. That's another thing. It's like duck hunters, 
you see you see it on Facebook every year, about middle of November, sometimes December. It's fuck duck hunting. I'm selling my whole spread. What do you you know? This is what I got. I'm selling it all. You see people do it every year, whether it's they have young people, old people, middle aged people. I Facebook groups. You just watch about mid November in Nebraska, even December. It's yep. I got eight dozen GHGs for sale. I'm. I'm getting out of duck hunting. Duck hunting sucks. Not only that, or they're putting up the shotgun and picking up a rifle, and it's time to shoot a deer. It's it, deer camp. It's deer camp, yeah. And so, like, when you get to that point, that's is a kind of a good thing. You kind of start losing some of the what we call the you know fair weather hunters, people who only go out when it's nice, who only go out on the weekends people who do do a lot of the standard stuff like everybody which for the people who are trying to become next level this is where you really start to you you start to exceed this is when you're changing up everything like i said it's november at this point you're losing people deer season starting the orange army is out in full it's cold your spots are starting to freeze up this is where it starts to get good this is where i believe as a waterfowl hunter, as strictly a duck hunter, is where you're going to exponentially grow in your knowledge of duck hunting. This is where things get serious. This is where you have the ability to strategize at max potential and learn from your strategizing, learn from the weather, learn from your hide. Precisely. I mean, like Hunter said, these birds are getting shot at and they've been shot at for a long time, and they've been held up north for longer than all your other birds. And so, just the scenarios, the stakes, the pressure, I mean, things are going up. Yes, and um, the biggest thing, you know, late season we'll get on to here. We'll probably get on to late season with goose season in the next waterfowl episode we do later on, but for... That early in mid-season, as just a general recap, it five big things. It's the weather, it's the decoys, it's the hide, it's the calling, and it's the motion, the, ex, the extras. Those five kind of big things is like on our checklist. Even in early season and late season, or I mean mid-season, you can use the same two, three spinners, but maybe in the mid-season you're starting to run them on remotes, you know. Maybe you are starting to use less decoys or maybe you obviously match the hatch, match the situation to the spread, but maybe you're changing it up. By then we use mostly mallard decoys because there's mostly mallards around, but occasionally we will change it up and throw in a few pintails and a few gadwall, even though you're probably not going to shoot one, you're throwing it out there so when the ducks are looking they're seeing something different. You know, and um, being able to have that kind of creativity is really how you step from beginner, intermediate to expert and extremely knowledgeable in the duck world. Knowing what the ducks are and how they work is it's such a challenge. But it's an accomplishment that once you get it and once you win, it's just like a high you'll never forget. It's to sum it up in a sentence as far as decoys go, diversify your spread as you see fit. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to describe it. Having that ability to pull out a spread, even when you, you know, pull out anything, having pull out 120 to pull out 30, because not everybody can afford 10 dozen decoys. Being able to work with what you got and learn and if you don't have very many decoys, put yourself in situations where not very many decoys will help you excel. If you're not a very good duck caller, put yourself in situations where you don't have to use your duck call as much. If you can't afford a lot of motion decoys, go buy a jerk string. Jerk strings are $15, $20, $30. And just buy yourself some string. Or buy some yeah. string and a big weight and, make it and tie a fucking rock to it or anything. There's always a way to get not even a poor man, just a, a reasonable, different option. So you're and not, you know, missing out on anything. This, to me, 
if any of you guys know me, I, it, I am a duck guy before a goose guy, before anything else. I love, love, love ducks. And the reason why is because it's so, so diverse. When you're hunting geese, you're hunting them in a dry field, you're hunting them on a river. I mean, you can shoot them on ponds too, but like ducks, you can hunt sloughs that are a couple yards wide. And then you can go from that to hunting a gigantic river. You know, that's, that's the beauty of it. You can have two, three, four, five, six, you know, duck decoys out up to five, ten dozen duck decoys. That is what I love about duck hunting. That's what makes it special to me. That's the glory of it. And, um, you know, closing argument here, duck hunting is what you make it. You put in a lot of effort. You spend a lot of time learning. You talk to people who know a lot. You learn from people who do do really well. You're, you're going to do great. Duck hunting is it's not something that a, you can't learn. No one's naturally good at duck hunting. Or, I mean, duck hunting is not something you can only be naturally good at. Duck, some, duck hunting is something that everybody can learn, everybody can be a part of, and everybody can accept. No matter where you're at in your knowledge, you're always learning. Yes. Don't don't take those days where you get you take a teeth kicking to heart either because you're still you're still learning. Yeah. If you go out and you don't shoot shit, you go out five days in a row and don't shoot shit. Don't give up. Just try something different. Try something different. Talk to somebody different. Spend more time on the road. Yeah. Do what you gotta do, man, but don't don't give up on it. Don't give up on it. We are uh, well. We're at time. It this was a it was a different episode. You know, it was quiet. It was really it was calm. It's a different episode than we normally produce here on this podcast. But I think we're gonna slip a few of these in here where we just kind of get real for a little bit and talk about hunting because at the end of the day, we are a guide service. This is a hunting podcast, and uh, I'm sure there will be people out there who want to learn and who want to know how to hunt because. YouTube will help you learn how to hunt in a lot of places, but talking to people, listening to the people who hunt in the exact areas that you hunt is how you, you know, probably the best way to learn. So you guys are looking Absolutely. to uh, check us out. Facebook, Instagram is at Whiskey Slews. If you want to call Grant, talk about booking a hunt, talk to Grant about the hunts and the packages that we offer, you call him at 308-830-3817. Without further ado, then I guess we're going to go on ahead and call her here. Yep, yep. Y'all have a good one. Yep, see you guys. We'll catch you later.